Um, I, I, have, I have a concession to make this morning. Uh, you know, usually on Sunday mornings, we like to have uh, maybe a song, maybe a little drama, maybe a video, some, you know, just to, just to reinforce what's going on, the message, just to bring home the truth in a different way. But I will tell you, quite honestly, there's not much you can do with Melchizedek. <laughs> I mean, I, on, I have scanned the uh, song charts. I have looked at the videos. I have looked at the drama scripts. He just doesn't crop up. He's not a big personality in any of this stuff. So you're just stuck with me this morning. I'm, I'm really sorry to tell you. But um, we are back in the book of Hebrews after a little uh, segue through the book of Psalms. And let me bring you up to speed with what's going on in the book of Hebrews. If you cast your mind right back to, I think it was the week after Easter when we started this uh, whole saga, in the book of Hebrews, and this is an ancient, ancient letter that has found its way into the Christian scriptures now, but it used to just be a letter on its own. It was written by an apostle or uh, one of the close comrades of the apostles. We're, we're in about the mid-60s of the first century, and more than likely this letter was headed to Rome and made it to Rome. Rome, if, you, if you're familiar with that time period, in the middle of the first century, for the whole of the first century, Rome was the center of the world. All roads lead to Rome. This is like the, I don't know, what's the modern day equivalent? New York, uh, Paris, London. It was just where everything happens. It was the economic, entertainment, political hub of the civilized world. It was the capital of the Roman Empire. It was the most glamorous and sought after city on the planet. And in the, in the back streets of this thriving metropolis of Rome, there was a huddled little group of Christ followers, Jewish Christ followers, who at some point in their life had come to confess Jesus as Lord, come to believe that He was the promised Messiah of Israel, begun following Him, begun subsequently leaving behind some of the traditions of their ancestors, some of the traditions of Judaism, uh, specifically law, temple, uh, Sabbath, these types of regulations, and had, had become a follower of what Acts calls the way, the Christian way, the way of Jesus. And that really meant a lot of problems for them. Unlike us today, comfortable middle-class Christians, uh, becoming a follower of Jesus back then was just a ticket for a whole lot of problems. They brought social shame on their family because to abandon the family heritage of Judaism was just tantamount to ostracizing yourself from your family in the first place. So they brought shame on their families. They brought social ridicule to themselves. They couldn't walk down the streets without somebody slandering them and abusing them. They were demoted at work. They lost jobs. Uh, in every social context that they were in, they were the people on the outside. They were the ones who were looked down on. They were the ones who people made fun of behind their backs. And even on top of that, there was levels of state persecution because you know, the Roman government wasn't particularly partial to Christians. This whole idea that Christians confess Jesus as Lord, which means Caesar is not Lord, which is a big problem because uh, back then it was emperor worship. Caesar was Lord of the whole world. And if you're going to set someone else up as Lord, namely a peasant criminal from Nazareth, then you're going to have to answer to the Roman authorities. And so right through the first century, there is wave after wave after wave of state persecution, property being seized, Christians being thrown into prison, being roughed up by Roman legions in the streets. This kind of thing is going on. As a result, some of these Christians had thrown in the towel. And it was just too hard for them, and they'd retreated back into the shadows of mainstream Judaism, back to the temple, back to the law, back to the sacrifice. Others were teetering. Not sure which way to go. They were hanging on in there with this Christian thing, but frankly, it was getting really, really tough for them, and they didn't know what to do. They were thinking at times about giving it in, and then there were other times they were energized. Some were hanging on. Some were persevering. Some were sticking it out. And it's in that 
crisis of faith situation, a real situation undertaken by real people in a real city, in a real point in space-time history that this letter was written to. It's not a piece of abstract theology. It's a real letter by a real person to real believers. And this letter is a plea to hold on, a plea to stand firm, don't give up, keep going, stay loyal to Jesus. And if you remember, the main strategy that the author uses right through this book is this whole idea that Jesus is better in every way than everything that preceded him, than all the institutions, the personalities, the, the rules and regulations of Judaism, Jesus is better. That doesn't mean that Judaism is bad and Jesus is good. It means that Judaism is incomplete without Jesus. It means that at, at the end of the day, Christianity is fulfilled Judaism. That's what we believe. That's what we're following. Christianity was never meant to be a separate religion from Judaism. It was the end goal of everything that Judaism had always pointed toward. The prophets, the law, the temple, the sacrifices, everything. It all culminated now in Jesus. And so the author systematically works through all of these uh, rituals of the Old Testament, all the major players, the big dogs, and shows how in every case Jesus is infinitely better and superior. You remember back in chapter 1, he talks about the prophets. Jesus is better than the prophets. They had their place. They were spokespeople for God, but Jesus is the Son. He communicates on behalf of God far better than any of them can. Then Jesus is better than the angels. You remember that? Randall shared on the angels. The angels, at the end of the day, are servants. They're ministering spirits, but Jesus is the Son. He outranks them. He trumps them. He's got a higher status with God in the scheme of redemption. And Jesus is better not only than the angels, he's better than Adam, chapter 2. Adam, being the spokesman of all humanity, couldn't lead humanity to its final destiny, but Jesus has come and led us where Adam couldn't take us. He's blazed a trail through the heavens and pioneered a new humanity in the Spirit, which we now experience through Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, he's better than Moses. Moses was the son over the house of Israel, but Jesus, sorry, Moses was the servant over the house of Israel, but Jesus is the son over the new people of God, the new covenant people. We're going to talk more next week about the new covenant and what that means. He's better than Joshua, who led his people into the promised land but couldn't give them true and final rest. Jesus has come and delivered rest for his people, which makes him not only better than Joshua, but better even than the Sabbath, that great ordinance of the Old Testament. Jesus has even trumped that. And remember we talked about the way that Jesus now is our Sabbath. The Sabbath is no longer a day, it's a person. Not a day of the week off, but a life off. Not a day of rest, but a life of rest that we find in Christ. Go through all of that, and then really the big argument here is uh, one that began in chapter 5, and we've been working our way through it, that Jesus is better than the high priest Aaron. Uh, not, don't think high priest in terms of a Catholic priest today that you see in, in the Catholic Church, a high priest in the Old Testament sense, who was a person who mediated between God and people. That's the best way to think of, of the role of the priest. He spoke to the people on behalf of God. He spoke to God on behalf of the people. He was the intermediary. He brokered that relationship between God and his people. That's what the high priest did. That's what all of the priests did, but then at the top of the pile is the big daddy, the high priest. That was firstly Aaron, the first, the original high priest, and then successively his sons and so on and so on, like the royal family. It's a bloodline. On it goes. And the author has been showing that Jesus is even greater than Aaron, the high priest. So, 
Today we hit chapter 7, and before we jump into that, I just want to give you a little heads up on where we're going from here, because really now, we are hitting the heart of Hebrews. 7 through 10, chapter 7 through 10, if you've already read it, you'll know this is the meat, this is the heavy stuff, this is the stuff that stumps everybody and where they give up and go home because it's all just too hard. This is why this stuff doesn't get preached in church, because it's just so hard. It really is, but we're going to stick with it, right? We are going to get into it, and it's going to be good, because I'm convinced that even though it's incredibly complex, it's also incredibly rewarding if we'll give it the time and, and just allow ourselves to sit at the foot of the cross, as it were, soak up this understanding, the Scriptures, and then let the good stuff come out. Now, as we work our way through, we're in chapter 7 today, a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be in chapter 9 and 10. We're going to hit those chapters, specifically chapter 9, on the 23rd of September. Chapter 9 and 10 of Hebrews is really the pinnacle of the book, and it is based around the most important day of the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement, or as it's now called, Yom Kippur. This was the single biggest occasion. If you're an Israelite in the Old Testament, if you're a Jew today, this is the day of all days of the year. In the Old Testament, it was the day when the sins of Israel were atoned for. And Hebrews 9 and 10 are going to deal with that day and now show what Jesus has done in relation to all of that. So, Jews are actually going to celebrate Yom Kippur this year, as every year, on the 22nd. It'll be the 22nd, Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday the 22nd of September. In fact, I think it's Friday sunset to Saturday sunset would be technically the Sabbath. So what we're going to do on Sunday the 23rd, we're going to come in here and we're going to have our own Christian Yom Kippur on Sunday morning the 23rd of September. We're going to land on those chapters anyway in Hebrews, chapter 9 and 10, which talk about the Day of Atonement. So we are going to, in a sense, reenact the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and we're going to relate that to Jesus. It's going to be crazy. There's going to be some different stuff going on. Come prepared. If you can read through, specifically, chapter 9 and 10 before the 23rd of September, which is two weeks from today, please do it. Uh, and just come ready to absorb some of the greatest truths and realities, I think, that are contained in the entire Scriptures. Okay, back to chapter 7. If you've got a Bible, crack it open. Here we meet this shadowy, elusive figure called Melchizedek. He's, if you remember, he's popped up a couple of times already. And the author has just alluded to him, just thrown, just sprinkled his name, and they never really dealt with him fully. But in chapter 7, he comes center stage. All of a sudden, Melchizedek is right out in the open, and the whole chapter really is about him. Now, we don't, I, I just don't have time this morning. I wish I could, but I'm not going to be able to go verse by verse through this entire chapter and exposit it for you. So I'm relying on you to read this yourself, to study this yourself in your life groups, around the family table, whatever you can do. What I want to do this morning in the few minutes we have is simply try and give you the central thrust of the argument that, on which chapter 7 hangs together. The main strand of logic that the author is working with here and what on earth Melchizedek crops up in the Bible for. Why is Hebrews 7 in the Bible? That's the big question. What, what's really happening here is by the time the author gets to Hebrews 7, he's talked about how Jesus is better than every other thing that came before him. And now he is dealing with an imagined objection. Okay? He knows the Jewish mind, probably being Jewish himself, 
And he is anticipating at this point a massive objection that might not occur to you and I, but it certainly would if you were a Jew. And it is this. If you're going to argue that Jesus is somehow a new high priest, that Jesus has trumped Aaron as the rightful high priest, you've got a problem. Because in Israel, only one tribe of people ever became priests, let alone high priests. Which tribe was that? Levi. If you were not a Levite, you could have all the aspirations in the world, you weren't going to be a priest. It's much like the royal family, you know, it's, it's a bloodline type deal. So only Levites could ever, ever, ever be priests. So when the author of Hebrews comes along and starts talking about Jesus now as the new high priest, Jesus is the priest, Jesus is the priest, immediately Jews are going to start thinking, wait a second, Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He just flat out didn't. What tribe did Jesus come from? Judah. Now that's documented, we know it, they knew it. So what's going on? How are you going to argue that Jesus is a high priest? This is where Melchizedek comes in. And the beginning of chapter 7 is really reciting the story of Melchizedek, introducing Melchizedek at this point to prove a very particular point. And the story that these verses are based on is right back in Genesis 14, and it's worth turning back there. Keep your finger in Hebrews 7, flick back for a second to Hebrews 14, because I want to show you what we're actually working with here back in Hebrews 14, all right? This is way back in, in the days of Abraham, even before Abraham with Abraham. This is Abraham, before God gave him his new name, okay? Genesis 14, let's pick it up in verse uh, 17. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedolaoma, I've been practicing that all week, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Now here it comes. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's the whole story. It's not like a couple of chapters later, there's five more chapters on Melchizedek and his exploits. It's not like there's the hidden book of Melchizedek that archaeologists have just dug up. That's all you get. And there's one other little reference to him in the book of Psalms, but that's just a reference back to this story. This is it. It's all we know about Melchizedek, and the author is going to make a whole chapter of Hebrews 7 about him. But this is exactly the point. We don't know where Melchizedek came from originally. We don't know anything about his family. We don't know what he spent his days doing. We don't know his favorite color. We don't know where he went. We don't know where he hung out. We don't know where he ended up. We don't really know much about him at all. The only thing we really know about him is that he was a priest of God Most High. That couldn't be clearer from Genesis 14, that Melchizedek is a priest. Now, ask yourself this question. Was Melchizedek from the tribe of Levi? Can't have been. Levi wasn't born. Levi was four generations later. We're back in the time of Abraham. He's got to have a son. That son's got to have a son. That son's got to have a son before we even get to Levi. Melchizedek predated all of that, and yet, the clearest of clear things we get in Genesis 14, this guy was a priest. 
This guy was a priest, so he can't have been a priest on the basis of his ancestry. He can't have been a priest on the basis of his bloodline. He must have simply been called by God to be a priest. God must have appointed him directly to that role, aside from the whole system of priests that eventually came through Levi. So there's your precedent. Okay, This is kind of like arguing case law. The author is saying, if you don't think Jesus can be a rightful priest, look at Melchizedek. He wasn't a Levite, and yet he was a priest. He was a priest of God, and therefore there is a precedent for Jesus to become a priest. Now, you know he's not going to leave it there. In view of everything he said through the book of Hebrews, you know what he's going to say about Jesus as the priest, right? That he's better. He's not just going to say, well, Jesus, Jesus is a priest, just like uh, all these Levitical priests. He's going to say, not only is Jesus a priest, but I'll tell you one other thing, he's better than all these other priests. And it starts in Hebrews 7 by showing that, that Melchizedek himself was better than Abraham, whom he met after this massive battle, because he blesses Abraham, because Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, clearly reflecting the fact that Melchizedek was greater in rank even than Abraham, from whom all these other priests originated. Jesus is part of the order of Melchizedek. And what that means is that his priesthood is the type of priesthood that Melchizedek had, not the type of priesthood that Aaron and the Levites had, not the type of priesthood where you became a priest by bloodline and so on, the type of priest where you were simply called by God. You're simply called and appointed to a specific task of the priesthood. Now, have a look in Hebrews 7, verse 3. Here's where the argument goes. This is talking about Melchizedek. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, some people look at that and say, well, there, Melchizedek was some kind of eternal figure. Melchizedek maybe was like a, an angel, or he was like a superhuman figure, or maybe he was even Jesus back in the Old Testament, pre-incarnate Jesus. I don't think any of that needs to be the case. There's no indication that Melchizedek was anything other than just a bloke. He was a man. He was called by God to be a priest. But the idea here is that we don't know anything about Melchizedek's genealogy. We don't know anything about his family tree. He, his priesthood doesn't seem to have had any beginning because it's not documented. His priesthood doesn't seem to have any end because we don't know anything about it. It is as if his priesthood lasted forever. It is as if. Now, it's not literally the case, but if, if you just simply go by Genesis 14, the author's saying it is as if Melchizedek had this eternal priesthood. We don't know where it began. We don't know who succeeded him. It's like he just kept going and going and going forever. Now, even though Melchizedek was just a person, that truth in itself becomes a foreshadowing, a signpost pointing to none other than Jesus Christ, who literally was an eternal priest. That's what Melchizedek does. He functions like a signpost pointing to Jesus. Melchizedek was a priest, not on the basis of his ancestry, but on the basis of a call from God. Jesus was the same. Melchizedek seemed to have no beginning to his priesthood, no end to his priesthood. Jesus was the same. He was the eternal priest. And so we read a few verses later in Hebrews 7 verse 14, for it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests, and then verse 15, well, let's skip to verse 16. One who has become a priest, this is Jesus, not on the basis 
of a regulation to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. That's the basis of Jesus' priesthood. Not his connections, not his family tree, his indestructible eternal existence. Jesus only lived on earth for 33 years, that's true. But before he arrived on the scene, before he was born, he still existed as the eternal Son of God. This is clear from John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the Word was God. Jesus has existed from all eternity, and he, his priesthood endures through all eternity. Jesus has been made a high priest forever, an intermediary between God and people forever, a broker of God's relationship with his people forever, on and on and on into eternity. That's what Melchizedek is showing us. That's what he's pointing towards. Okay, take a breath. Take a breath. It's pretty heavy. It's pretty intense. You still tracking? Yeah. All right, it's a few of you, both of you. Excellent. Now, the, the, the $64 million question here is, who, who, who cares? <laughs> who really cares, right? I mean, we can go on, you can, you know, drone on and on and on about Melchizedek, but honestly, who cares? You're sitting there, you've got bills to pay, you're thinking about what's coming up this week, the kids are giving you a hard time, you're struggling with your health, your marriage is falling apart, and I'm rattling on about Melchizedek. Who really gives a rip? Let's be honest. That's what you're thinking, isn't it? Come on! That's what you're thinking. Where, at what possible point does this actually intersect my existence? Now, let me try and show you, all right? The onus is on me to try and show you some possible relevance. Why on earth did Hebrews 7 make it into the Bible? I had to come this far to show you the argument that's going on. I'm running out of time, but I want to pull this together and show you where this actually connects to our existence. All right, verse 23 of Hebrews 7. Now, since there have been many of those priests, that's the ones that came through Aaron and Levi, since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Here's the big question. What is Jesus doing right now? interceding. You see, we have this perception, I know I have, that Jesus really, the big deal for him was 2,000 years ago. He came, he died, buried, resurrected. That was the biggie. And then he basically ascended to heaven, and ever since then he's just been signing autographs for the angels, giving high fives to the Father and the Spirit, and just hanging out until God says, now it's time to return. Just kicking back in his cosmic hammock, all right? Not the case. Hebrews 7 paints a different picture. Jesus right now is actively passionately, fervently involved in human history. And the form that his work takes is that of intercession. What does that mean? Jesus is interceding for me. Jesus is interceding for you. What does that mean? Let me try and paint it to you this way. In a few minutes' time, we're all going to file out these doors. You're going to go have morning tea or lunch. You're going to go and spend time with family, friends, kick back, work, whatever it is that you do on a Sunday. I'm going to give you about five minutes after you leave here before you do say or think something stupid, all right? <laughs> maximum, maximum. Most of you, it's happening right now. Some of you, some of you, I'm going to give you five. But I mean, you know, someone's going to cut you off and you're going to swear at them or under your breath, you're going to swear at them. You know how that works. If you don't say it out loud, it doesn't count, right? It's going to happen. You're going to snap at your wife. You're going to snap at your kids. You're going to get stroppy. You're going to slander or criticize someone behind their back, you may commit the cardinal sin of criticizing the sermon. 
<laughs> I can't, there's no hope for you there. I'm sorry. That's, uh, Hebrews 7 can't help you in that one. But all those other ones, you know, you're going you're gonna to do all the stupid stuff. And just imagine, now we're talking in metaphors here, so uh, it's not literally the case. But imagine that when you do that stupid thing, you say that stupid thing, you look at that thing you shouldn't look at, whatever. At that moment, here's what's going on in heaven. Jesus leans over to the Father and says, that's covered. It's covered. That's on me. You nailed that to me on the cross. I bore that in my body on the cross. I died for it. It's covered. Two minutes later, you're going to do something again. All right? You're going to swear again. You're going to criticize again. You're going to get stroppy again. And Jesus is going to lean over to the Father again and say, it's covered. That's covered too. That's on me. You can stay your hand of wrath. You can pour out your forgiveness because I have forgiven that. I've made it possible for you to forgive that sin. And you're going to do something stupid again and again and again. And it's not even specific actions that you commit. It may just be the inertia of your own laziness, my own laziness of not spending the time that we should in God, with God. You know those times when you pray and it just feels like there's this huge chasm that's opened up between you and God. Just the simple reality that our lives consistently fail to image God the way they should that they are not conforming to the character of Jesus day by day. All of that stuff, every time, in every way, Jesus is leaning over to the Father and saying, it's covered. Covered. You don't need to judge. You don't need to condemn. Because it's covered. I died for that. Every single time. And because Jesus is a high priest for eternity, he's going to do that again and again and again and again, every single time. See, the day that you became a follower of Jesus, at that point, your sin was completely forgiven, past, present, and future. But that forgiveness is applied to you in every moment. Every moment that you do something wrong, every moment you think something wrong, every moment you just simply exist short of the glory of God in, in your very being as a corrupted, sin-tainted person, God's forgiveness is lavished upon you again through the work of Jesus Christ. He purchased it all for you 2,000 years ago. He forgave you the moment you became a believer. He applies it to you every moment of every single day. That's why the Bible says God's mercies are new every morning because Jesus is alive every morning. The tomb is empty every morning. And so Jesus lives continually to intercede for you before the Father. Isn't that fantastic? Can't you see the way in which it is so futile for you and I to say things like, I just don't know that God could forgive me for that. I just, I'm not sure that, if there was any doubt as to whether God could possibly forgive you for something that you have, are, or will do, Jesus would never have died in the first place. He would not have gone to the cross. The very fact that he has died for the sin of the world means that every single thing you can ever do is already taken care of. You can't out-sin God. Don't try, but you can't, all right? Because Paul says in, uh, I think it's Romans, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Grace superabounds. It covers your sin and then some. The smallest little embellishment of the truth covered. The greatest and most heinous sin that you have committed in your life, that dark secret in your closet that very few people even know about. God knows about it. God knows about that addiction. God knows about that abortion. God knows about whatever it is that you're trying to hide from other people. And guess what? It's covered. It's dealt with. It's done away with. And Jesus right now is interceding for you before the Father, 
receiving God's forgiveness and through the Spirit lavishing it upon you. The healing balm of the Holy Spirit poured out upon you for every single transgression, every single offense, every moment of every day of your life. Friends, what a great assurance that should give us. What confidence that should give us to enter the Holy of Holies, to commune with God, the assurance it should give us to live out of grace and not condemnation. Don't let anyone make you live in guilt and fear and shame. You're set free from that. Jesus is interceding for you to put an end to all that. I think we can take this one step further. To intercede for someone means to petition on their behalf. It means to advocate on their behalf. And I think there's a sense in which Jesus is our advocate before the Father, representing us to God. Just as he's representing God's forgiveness to us, I think he's representing us to God. Now, we have to be very careful here, as Gary Marshall reminded me this week, one of our elders, very correctly, that there's often a perception in people's minds that Jesus is running around taking prayer requests when we give them, and then sort of showing up before God and saying, now, Father, um, Tony has asked for strength for his exams coming up, and he's asked you to save his marriage. Please, Father, please, uh, answer Tony's prayer. And there's, you know, God, the angry judge sitting there. Well, I'm not sure. Let me think. Thumbs up, thumbs down. You know, Jesus placating uh, an angry God, pleading with God on your behalf. That, when you really follow it through, it just falls over as a picture of who God really is because it does damage to the nature of God. We serve a God who is triune, Father, Son, Spirit, all working together in harmony. The Trinity acts, thinks, and speaks with one mind, one will, one purpose, always. Don't ever, ever, ever set the Son against the Father as if they could be thinking different things, as if they could be somehow colliding with each other. Think of it rather in this way. Jesus gives us the authority to pray and relate to God. Jesus holds the door open. He's got his foot in the door, so to speak, and he's never taking it out so that you and I can enter with confidence in the very presence of God. It's Father, Son, and Spirit together that hear our prayers. If, even if you're just praying to the Father, Father, Son, Spirit always do everything together. No matter which one of them you're praying to, each of them receive your prayer, each of them respond to your prayer. But it is on Jesus' authority that we pray. It's because of what he's done for us that we gain access to God, that we can come before him and present our requests to him. This is his role. That's why when you pray, you pray in Jesus' name. Have you noticed that? We just do that without even thinking about it, but this is why. It's because Jesus has enabled us to come to God, and when you and I pray, when we say, God, I pray in Jesus' name, what we're saying is, I'm praying this only because Jesus has allowed me to. I'm only here. I'm only addressing you as Father. I'm only standing on this holy ground because of him. In other words, in Jesus' name means I'm with him. It's, revo it's evoking Jesus as our mediator and saying, he's the, he's the reason I'm here. That's what it's about. It's Jesus' authority that enables us to go to God. And that should fill us with confidence in our prayer life. It should add fervency to your prayers, knowing that you have an advocate before the Father. And I'll tell you one other thing about this. You remember when Jesus was talking to Peter on the night that he was betrayed? And he, and he said to Peter, you're going to go through this trial, this, this tempting before the, the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. You remember that story? And then what he said next, he said, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now think about that. Did Peter pray for himself? Not as far as we know. He couldn't have. He didn't really even know what was coming. 
But Jesus said, Peter, I've gone to the Father for you and I've prayed that your faith may not fail. And there is no reason to think Jesus isn't doing exactly that today, even when you're not praying. Jesus is still interceding for you before God. Even when you are too hurt and broken to pray, and some of you are in this place right now, you just don't have the, the, the strength to cry out to God. It's more like a groan. And some of you just feel so far away from God, you can't even imagine right now coming into his presence and even crying out, you're too angry, you're too broken, you're too hurt. You need to know this morning that Jesus is interceding for you right now before the Father. Even if you are not praying to him yourself, Jesus is still interceding on your behalf, still receiving from the Father his strength, his power, his sustenance, his grace, the persevering enabling of the Holy Spirit, and he's pouring that upon you, enabling you to carry on, offering you the strength to take just one more step, to go just one more round. When you and I are too lazy to pray, when we're too disobedient to pray, and we're caught up and entangled in patterns of sin and rebellion that we're ashamed of. And we just hang our head and don't believe that God could ever take us back. Even then, Jesus is still interceding for you before the Father. He's still receiving from the Father grace. He's still receiving from the Father the assurance that you're forgiven. And he's pressing that on your heart. Maybe he's doing that for you right now, assuring you that you are truly forgiven, that you're still his precious son, that you're still his precious daughter, that God has not and will not ever, ever, ever give up on you. And he's waiting here with arms open wide if you'd only return to him, that he loves you. Jesus is interceding for you even now, even when there's stuff around the corner that you and I don't know about. You don't know what's going to happen this week. You don't know what temptations lurk around the corner. You don't know what crisis lurks around the corner. I took a funeral service on Friday for a 26-year-old guy. Died of meningitis in a few days. You have no idea what's coming, friends. But Jesus does. And he's interceding for you. I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith won't fail. He didn't say, I've prayed that God would take this temptation away from you, that God wouldn't let it happen. He said, no, I prayed that your faith won't fail, that you'll get through it. There is nothing that you can't handle in the power of the Spirit and the presence of Jesus Christ with you. What a great thing it is to know that Jesus is your advocate. You have an advocate before the Father in heaven. You have a champion in heaven, and not just any advocate, the Son of God himself, the Son of the Father, the Son of the Most High God, holding the door to the holy place where God resides, open to you with his foot and allowing you every moment of every day to come in. Jesus is interceding for you, atoning for your sin, applying the forgiveness of God in every moment. He's receiving your prayers and with the Father and the Spirit responding to them in love. And he's praying for you even when you're not praying for yourself, for forgiveness, for mercy, for perseverance, for grace. Friends, it should fill us with assurance to enter the presence of God. It should add fervency to our prayer life, and it should motivate and stir us like nothing else to give our lives over to the one who gave everything for us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Father, we give you praise this morning. We thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die, to be buried, 
to be raised to life again. Jesus, we thank you that you're alive this morning, that the stone has been rolled away and the tomb is empty. And we thank you, Jesus, that you, even at this very instant, are interceding for us before the Father. Lord, you know our hearts. Jesus, you know what's going on in our life. You know our struggles. You know our sins. You know our skeletons in the closet. You know everything that's coming up in our lives this afternoon and tomorrow and the next day, everything that's around the corner for us this week, and you're already interceding on our behalf. You're already working together as, as the wonderful triune God that you are to make a road for us and to enable us to step forward one step at a time. Jesus, we thank you so much that you're our Redeemer and that through you we can call God our friend. We thank you in the name of Jesus.